when times in our lives seem confusing and your world appears to be just a little too crazy. Go ahead and take a rest here. Laugh, learn, enjoy a little bit for the lives of others with author and business coach Dennis Mansfield. Then share it with others because joy is just around the corner. A friend of mine recently said, the only stuff that happens, happens along the way. So get going. I would add, let's get going because the world is just around the corner. Hi, this is Dennis Mansfield, and welcome to the podcast. You know, a hundred years from now, Americans will look around and wonder about the culture in which we live today. They'll wonder how we did what we did and why we did it. I'm fascinated by the flow of culture over the history of our country, certainly over the history of our world. But in America, it's rather interesting to look backward and then say, how is this from what we lived through? what we suffered through 100 years ago, going to impact us for 100 years from now. So I'm going to start 100 years, 100 plus years ago. And I want to use General Ulysses S. Grant as a focal point. And a lot of people see him as a president or they see him on the $50 bill and say, good, give me some change. But the reality is that Grant didn't even consider his time as a United States president worthy enough to include in his own personal memoirs that he wrote as he was dying. Instead, the two volumes set were specifically focused on his life in the military and his time with the Civil War. After two volumes of reading about Ulysses S. Grant, from Ulysses S. Grant, and reading about the people he knew, the people he had dinner with, the generals that he displaced and the generals that he fired, the generals who he honored, it's fascinating at the very end of the second volume to see U.S. Grant, a four-star general in the United States Army, do an overview. And this is what he said. He looked up and he was talking to Mark Twain, who was the publisher of his book. And he said this to him, and Twain said, you've got to put that in the very end of your book, the last summary chapter. This is what Grant said. As time passes, people, even of the South, will begin to wonder how it was possible that their ancestors ever fought for or justified institutions which acknowledged the right of property in man, slavery. His point then is our point now. What will we look at? What will our ancestors look at? Uh, Our future progeny, better put. We'll look at, as they look back on us as their ancestors, and say, what were they even thinking about? Oftentimes, when culture is discussed, it's discussed in the idea of budgets, and how in debt our nation is, and what we spend our money on. Because all government, 
You know, regardless of fancy speeches and whether you like JFK or you like Ronald Reagan, regardless of whether you like Trump or you liked Obama, uh, people sort of distilled down to that was a wonderful speech at the Berlin Wall, President Reagan. But reality in government is that speeches mean very little. It's always the budget. It's always what do we place money towards for the benefit of our nation today? Budgets determine policy. We think that policy determines budgets. But as Grant said during the entire time of the Civil War, I will use whatever you give me to win this war. See, McClellan, who had been a previous general who had had this role, said, give me more troops, give me more money, give me the opportunity. And he failed miserably throughout the Civil War first two years. Ulysses S. Grant was brought in, and he went after it. He was very supportive of Lincoln being able to take the slaves and allowing them to come in as soldiers, men and, and women who could come into the camps. The men would become soldiers and the women would become helpers to give them the dignity of being a human being. You see, at the time, there was, a, there was a, an iconic image that was created on China uh, painting, and it showed a man, a slave man in bondage, kneeling and praying towards a white man. But it wasn't praying to, to the man. It was praying to God and asking the question of the white man, am I not a human being and a brother? So powerful was that that it became the iconic logo of the freedom movement to bring about people to realize these are human beings. What are we doing? So now in 1885, as Ulysses S. Grant releases his book, and he asks that question that in the future, people will scarce be able to take it in. Then Americans allowed slavery and fought to keep it. Well, let's look at culture 100 years from now. What will they look back at? What will they see and say, are you kidding me? We did that? Uh, just the other night, I had the honor of sitting in on something called Living Room Conversations. Now, it was founded by the co-founder of Move On. Now, understand, I'm a conservative. Move On is not a conservative entity. But the co-founder of it, an incredibly bright person, she came up with the idea of bringing people from different points of view together to talk about the things that are dividing our nation. And so, from a cultural point of view, I had the honor of sitting around a table with people who don't hold what I hold as important, and hearing from them why they believe. You know, you can take whatever side of whatever issue you want, but if you take the issue of abortion, which we discussed, it was a fascinating thing for me to listen to and for me to speak to them uh, about what our differences of opinions were. And do you know we came to a general consensus, and the consensus was amazing to me, and I've been very involved in in legislation for years from a conservative point of view. But I'd never stop to think about the issue of adoption in our culture today being so difficult for moms and dads who cannot have babies to try and adopt and get one. You can get a, you can get a dog or a cat from the Humane Society very quickly because it's important that we do do that. My wife and I are a rescue family for a little puppy. And that's fantastic. But the person who wants to adopt and has to go through unbelievable pain uh, and paperwork and 
uh, unacceptable delays in order to get a little baby to have as their own. So whether they were pro-choice or pro-life, we all came together and said, this must not be the case. I loved it. I loved the discussion because a quicker time to adopt and an opportunity to get that baby, that boy, that girl into the family to go for the future. A hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, like Ulysses S. Grant said, people will look back and say, I can't believe that it took that long to be able to adopt a single child in the United States of America. May it be. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. Brown Sign Brothers from Boise, where we bring everybody who you know to the forefront and we talk about on our trips all across America. For example, Mary and Michael Morrison. Who's she? (laughs) Oh, you would be hard-pressed to say that to the person who Mary and Michael Morrison is. Marion. Marion. Like Lady Marion from Robin Hood. Or Marion the Librarian. Marion the Librarian. Yeah, yeah, you would say that. It's a boy. It's a man. He became... John Wayne. That's correct. The and Duke. there we were, traveling on the highways, going down, going through Iowa, or as they say, Iowa, I think, the people that live there, I don't know. But we were going by, and we saw a brown sign that said what? Birthplace of John Wayne. And I said, oh, dude, we've got to pull off here. And, and when we did, we didn't know what we were, we were going to find. It wasn't an easy, uh, from the highway to the actual building, it wasn't an easy uh, map. No, it, was it wasn't. Like, you got to be really looking hard to, to get there. Yeah, and, and as we traveled, I think we even took a couple wrong turns. We did, and we turned around. But the historical <clears throat> signs, eventually we would see, and then we'd follow them. Yep. That's the beauty of the brown signs, because even if you get off the highway or the freeway, you can look around and say, "Where? oh, there's one, and then it moves you through. We pull up into Winterset, Iowa. It was a beautiful town of Winterset, Iowa. It really was a it lovely was. It was. It was very cool. And the, the little, it was a bedroom community. Mm-hmm. The little house, that had, it was white picket fence all the way around with a certain door to walk through. Yeah. Uh, it has uh, their, their hours of operation from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I think we got there around 10, 15 or so. I don't think it had been open very long because right. there weren't a lot of people. There weren't. Maybe there aren't a lot of people that go to Winterset, Iowa. I don't know. But we increased the population by about 20% by the two of us <laughs> being there. So we went in. <clears throat> yeah, we went in. And it's it was very nice. A uh, nice little shop of collectibles, cups, mm-hmm. which I love my cup because it, uh, it, it has, has a, a picture quote. of Mary and Michael Morrison on it. Oh, actually, it's John Wayne. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but it, one of my favorite quotes is that you can be scared as hell. Yeah, see, courage is being scared as hell, but still saddling up anyway. Yeah. And I love that. And, and, you know, it's a fascinating thing that most people don't realize that John Wayne or Marion Michael Morrison, when he grew up and left with his family to go to California eventually, uh, got a job in the studio system. He was a gear guy. So he would get get different uh, uh Weapons, different chaps, hats, and so forth. And as a student at USC and also a football player, Marion Michael Morrison, still maintaining that name, decided that 
because he had a he had a fun loving dog named Duke that he'd rather be named after a dog than a woman. So <laughs> he ends up taking the name the Duke. Duke. The right. Duke. And, and when he did, he had a most interesting uh, friendship relationship with a man who had been brought in in the early twenties to be able to start looking at how the cowboys are shown to be. That person was Wyatt Earp. Oh, wow. And John Wayne, Mary and Michael Morrison, Duke, was able to deal with him, see him, watch him. He looked at how he walked. He looked at the confidence that he had, and he made up his mind, if I'm going to imitate anybody, I'm going to imitate that guy. Now, Wyatt Earp wasn't there for a long time, and then we have another wonderful story that you and I have about uh, Wyatt Earp and his brothers (laughs) that we'll talk about at a later show. But, But this young man, Duke, made the decision that if he was ever going to be in films, he would use that personality uh, as he played, and indeed he did. He did many, many shows, many, many uh, films, uh, and then ultimately Stagecoach was the one that brought him out. And John Wayne said repeatedly through his life that that when you saw him, you saw Wyatt Earp. Wow. Isn't that That's a fascinating amazing. thing? That's awesome. But in Winterset, Iowa, there was no wider, there was no there was no spurs on his boots. He was a little baby <laughs> coming out of mama. Yep. And we stood there and looked at the bed of where John Wayne was born. Yep. What was amazing to me was how small the actual place was. It was, it really was like teeny. twenty by twenty, maybe twenty by thirty. Yeah. And I was like, he grew up here and the lady was so funny. She goes, Oh no. He was born here, and they moved that way uh, three months later. Something like that. Three Something like that. Three, yeah. And I thought, okay, so he's is now old, would have been over a hundred years old. Sure. And you're still charging money for people to come and see that, and that shows you how much John Wayne or Marion Michael Morrison really impacted our all of our lives, our cultures. Yeah. And, and decade after decade mm-hmm. after, he died in 1979. He died in June of 79, and to today, his image still makes money for the family. His Mm -hmm. shows, his films uh, all make uh, incredible income, much like Marilyn Monroe or others, because he's iconic. He he was iconic as a a young man. He was iconic as a middle-aged man. And even to the point of his last few years, when he was in 1970, he was in a film that was recently redone called True Grit. True Grit. And from that, he was up against uh, all of the actors in Midnight Cowboy for the best acting role in the Academy. He won. Wow. He beat them. He beat Peter O'Toole. And he did it as that one-eyed Rooster Cogburn. <laughs> and when he did that, that was the sentimental vote, but it was also the vote uh, many people at the time said he should have won. He should have been nominated for the man who shot Liberty Valance. Yes. That's and yes, absolutely. That's the essence of John Wayne right. in that. Because yeah. he would always let other people become the hero. Yes. He didn't have to be the hero. He just was the hero. And so he started out as a little baby. And then by nineteen seventy nine, when he passed away, his last movie was The Shootist. The Shootist, yeah. Ron and Howard. He, and Ron Howard and Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Lauren Stewart. Bacall. Yeah. And that character died of cancer. After well, uh, he died actually of uh, he was dying of cancer. lead poisoning. Yeah, because he was shot to <laughs> death by by Richard. I think he had a heart attack too. By Richard so. Booth wasn't that who it was? Uh, the guy that played Paladin. Is that who yeah, that was? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was just such a such a Western way yeah. to say goodbye yeah. to a Western hero who was really born as an Iowa baby mm-hmm. in Winterset, Iowa. Marion Michael Morrison, 
John, John Wayne. Wayne. No, sir. No, sir, I ain't. Haven't butted into anybody's business since it was 18 year old. At which time it almost got me killed. Ain't gonna start that again. What's the matter? Oh, what do you have to go and do that for? The iconic director, John Ford, saw John Wayne and helped give him his name when he was only marrying Michael Morrison. Well, those two worked together, and the very last film that John Ford ever did with John Wayne, after having done a lot of work over many decades, was a film called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Well, the film should have gained John Wayne his Oscar. That came later under True Grit. But it was so magnificent a film because the topic was something every one of us can live with. Wait, wait, wait. Western, every one of us can what? what? We don't wear spurs. We don't have horses. What are you talking about? Well, some of us don't. And some of us do. Here's the reality. All of us have this. Have you ever felt that you did something and didn't get the attention for what you did and someone else did? How would you respond to that? In this film, written early on as a small book and then turned into this film, the story is very clear. It's about an Easterner, a lawyer, who comes into a particular city. And in this, it's not really a city, it's really a town. A, a small town in the West, and in so doing, gets accosted by a highwayman, which is a nice way of saying a robber, a bandit. In those days, they called him highwayman. He was beat almost to death. In the film, the lawyer's name was Ransom Stoddard. The villain who beat him almost to death was Liberty Valance. And in moving his almost near dead body away after having discovered it in the sagebrush. Tom Donovan picked him up, put him on a buckboard and brought him in to the little town of Shinbone. And he and some others nursed him back to health. Well, the movie covers a period of just really maybe six weeks in the life of Ransom Stoddard and the rest. But you see, it interrupts the life of Tom Donovan. Tom Donovan was in love with a young lady who took a certain fancy to the beaten and broken Ransom Stoddard. Meanwhile, there was always looming the shadow, the ghost, not yet ghost, but the shadow, certainly, of Liberty Valance. And so at a certain point, they come to the climatic moment of the movie. John Ford does a superb job in black and white, being able to create an image where you say, no, this can't be. Jimmy Stewart playing Ransom Stoddard, or, 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 I, I, I don't believe in violence, uh, suddenly is look, you know, look, looking into the eyes of Liberty Valance, who calls him, dude, come on, you're going to pull your trigger, dude? And then off in the shadows is Tom Donovan, played by John Wayne. And the sequence of events that happen are amazing. Who in your life helped you 
when you didn't know anything about it and changed your life because of what he or she did? How many times in your own life have you reached out anonymously to touch the lives of others and help them out? Maybe it was a gift. Maybe it was Christmas time, buying gifts for strangers. Whatever it is, what did you do that changed the course of their life? You see in the movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, John Wayne kills Liberty Valance from the shadows. Wow, Jimmy Stewart fires off a round that goes skyward almost, and Liberty Valance is dead. They come together as a small community and lift up Liberty Valance, and they, they realize he's dead, he's dead, this is great news. And then they put him in the wagon, and they shift him off to Boot Hill, but it's the way they embrace Ransom Stoddard as the man who shot Liberty Valance. His whole life goes on. He becomes a delegate, and then a senator, and then the governor, and then the ambassador to the court of St. James. At the very end, which is really the start of the movie, he goes back to Shinbone, and Tom Donovan has died, and nobody even knew who Tom Donovan was, but they knew who Ransom Stoddard. And so when, in a reflective mode, the film goes back and reviews exactly what I just said, it's finished, and one of the publishers who's taking notes says that, you know, he says, I can't print this, what you've told me. It would, it would unmask everything about you. And when the legend becomes greater than reality, print the legend. The very end of the film, as it, the senator gets back onto the train to go back to Washington, D.C. with his wife, the woman that at one time, Tom Donovan, now deceased, had loved. The conductor comes by and gives him a new spittoon. And he says, Senator, there's nothing too good for the man who shot Liberty Valance. John Ford captures the look of the husband and the wife as they look at each other, knowing the truth. A fascinating film, one for you and your family to watch. Fun facts and odd things. You know, I've said in other podcasts how I really enjoy researching and finding things that pop up. And I go, wait a minute. What about that? That'll fit in the podcast. Why? Well, let's talk about it. Where did Buffalo Bill's Wild West show open? It, you know, entertainers all since the 1800s have said that it's Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show that started the whole fascination worldwide about cowboys. Well, it opened right in front of Queen Victoria and her subjects. And it was the first look at real cowboys and Indians. See, Bill Cody had been a buffalo hunter and he'd been a scout with the army and he'd worked for the railroads, which earned him the nickname Buffalo Bill because he killed so many of them. And he had gained national prominence 15 years earlier thanks to a novel that was actually written by a fellow named Edward Zane Carroll Judson. Writing under the name Ned Buttline, Judson made Cody the hero of his highly sensationalized novels. And they, the people of America just could not get enough. In 1872, he convinced uh, Cody to travel to Chicago to star in a stage version of the book. Cody broke 
with Judson after a year, but he enjoyed the life of a performer, and he stayed on stage for 11 seasons. Finally, in 1883, Cody staged an outdoor extravaganza called the Wild West Rocky Mountain and Prairie Exhibition. The 4th of July celebration in North Platte. I think I got that right, Platte. All the people in Nebraska are going to go, of course it is. When the show was a success, Cody suddenly realized, wait a minute, we could make money off this thing. And he began going all over the world. He brought people who were from Deadwood and who were in the Pony Express. And he brought Indians who had been a part of the Wild West. And he brought little Annie Oakley into it, an Ohio woman. who earned, she, she earned her name by shooting a cigar out of an assistant's mouth. Think of that, Annie Oakley. So all of a sudden, that entire movement of what the world understood about the Wild West only came from seeing these men performing in entertainment. So the Wild West show really waned in popularity in the 20th century, partly because of the competition from thousands of local rodeos and bar, the, you know, all those things, including ultimately movies. It was still an amazing jettison for the spirit of the Wild West to go all over the world. Now, here's the th- fascinating thing. Uh, because film was important in helping take that, most people don't realize that Thomas Edison, who really, we, we think about the light bulb and we think about all the things that he did, most people don't realize he actually started a motion picture company. He was the one who early on in 1898 uh, sued another company that was infringing on his patent. He, he had this incredible uh, company uh, that was displayed all across the country. It's called Vitascope. And in, uh, people would go and see it, and they could not believe that they, they were seeing ultimately moving pictures, something that we look at and we go, well, well that's why we call them movies. And then finally, in 1902, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that Edison did not invent the motion picture camera, but someone else did. And it allowed that he had invented a certain system within it. But so what? He lost his suit. So Thomas Edison joined the forces with other filmmakers to create the Motion Picture Patent Corporation, an organization that devoted uh, itself to protecting patents and keeping other players from entering the film industry. Courts later found the organization to be an unfair monopoly. And in 1917, the Supreme Court dissolved the trust. The following year, the Edison Company had abandoned the film industry. Abandoning things is a fascinating thing because also, over the years, we've seen cities where Major League Baseball uh, was moved. They abandoned the city in order to take that particular team to another place. Happens in all big sports. But most people don't realize that the the owners of the Dodgers and the Giants, which were both in New York, at at one point in time, made the decision to move to what San Francisco and and L.A. San Francisco Giants, the Los Angeles Dodgers. But what happened was the major league owner said you could not do that unless you both left at the same time. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know what the reasoning was. But it ended up being that when they moved, they moved within two weeks of each other. Boom, boom. And all of a sudden, New York was at a loss for two incredible teams 
that went on to do even more as they moved out. Sometimes in entertainment, um, you got to still go on with the show. Sometimes you just got to keep going. And so the fans in Los Angeles and the fans in San Francisco gained. While later, uh, the fans in New York were able to get the Mets, even though they loved to beat on them. And of course, they adored the Yankees. Show business moves differently. And it's fun to see the fun facts that make it so. Just Around the Corner is a feature of DennisMansfield.com. Original music and podcast production by Michael Seals. Kudos to the Traveling Wilburys, Nat King Cole, Ken and Colin Mansfield, Ryan Yeager, Jerry Woods, and Kevin Miller in the Morning for your inspiration.